This is Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 6.40 Toronto. It's Saturday at 5 p.m. on 6.40 Toronto, and it's time for a little bit of Tasting Together with Andre Pru and myself, Maroki Tong. Hello. Andre, I know you've been talking a lot about summer being almost over or some <laughs> such, and just so you know, the first day of fall is not till September 21st, but the festivals are still going in the GTA. Yeah, I know. We, you've got something really great lined up for this, but before we get into that, like talking about summer ending, I was really reflecting on what you and I have done over the summer and, and take a quick reminder that people can go to the Global News website, take a look at some of the older shows that we did. We talked to Holly McNarland earlier this summer of uh, Big Shiny Tunes 2 fame, really great Canadian songstress turned cafe owner. And uh, I had a chance to catch up with Dale McKay live and in person in the beautiful city of Regina. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that one out there because I feel like it was kind of a big deal. Yeah, there's a there's like a lot of big hitters that we've had the opportunity to chat with all summer. I know you and I have both been on the road. So, yep. you know, if you guys have um, planning trips in the future or doing some armchair travel, I, you know, I went to I went to Greece. Um, I had Chicago. I did not eat Chicago deep dish pizza. Don't hurt me. But I did discover Chicago dogs. Yes. And um, and uh, I think it was like a like a beef sandwich. And there's <laughs> we want to talk about a few other of the, the fame of the Food Network on the Top Chef Canada side. We also sh- talked to Chef Tanya Brandt. That's right. Um, indigenous chef and all the cool things she's up to. So yeah, and then, and you know, not only on the Global News website, I believe our show is also available to listen on so, you know, any of your favorite podcasting platforms like um, like Spotify or Apple iTunes. You can tell I'm really, really old school and I totally just do it <laughs> on the news website. Um, it was one of those things where one of our listeners like messaged us and was like, I love listening to your show on Apple iTunes. So not to toot our own horn, but uh, from the words of some listeners, they like listening to our show. So if you enjoy catching us live at 5 p.m., you can always go to the Global News website or Spotify or Apple iTunes. Is it called Apple iTunes? I don't even know. Anymore. I don't even That's know what it's called anymore. Apple something. It's a Apple podcast. podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast as well. So, okay. I'm actually really excited about this because I know it's something you and I have touched on a lot on the show. Being a prairie boy, I am through and through a big fan of my meat. I love beef. I love pork. Uh, you know, I've gone on adventures, which is something we'll definitely un- unpack at a later show about the concept of terroir, like food tasting, where it comes from with beef and done the whole cross Canada tour of like Prince Edward Island versus Ontario versus Manitoba versus Saskatchewan beef. But you and I are big, big fans of vegetables, especially at this we time are. of year when we have that small window of like everyone's gardens delivering these beautiful bounties of fresh tomatoes and zucchini and you know i'm i'm seeing remembering my sister-in-law's garden with a, a what will eventually be a large bounty of pumpkins which i'm i'm jealous i'm not going to be there for but you've got a food festival that i think a lot of people don't necessarily know about that they should check out if they're especially if they're veg curious yeah and actually it's interesting i have gone to this festival mo- like most years since 2009 2010 when i first moved into the city more full time and at that time i was act- i was actually um beginning to explore more plant based living i actually went vegan for about a year year and a half and one and i think there were a couple reasons why i eventually moved away from that i think one for for health reasons for myself personally and um two i just really liked food and it was it was difficult to um, adhere to a really, really specific diet. I I actually would be surprised 
surprised that people didn't know this festival. It's been around for such a long time. And um, but they always seem to have surprisingly little information about it. It's called it's um, the Vegetarian Food Fest, which now has been renamed VegTO Fest. And for many, many years, it actually took place down at the Harborfront Center. Mm-hmm. And it's free. It happens all weekend, and it's actually going on right now. So the and as the show ends, the first day will be over. But there will be one more day for the festival. It will be happening tomorrow from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. So for those of you who are looking to check it out, it's actually changed locations. It is at the Nathan Phillips Square this year. Wow. I mean, a great location, centrally located, Cute. especially in a, a city that's already a little bit hard to get around. I know the harbor front um, in particular can be a bit of a pain to get to and from, but, you know, right Nathan Phillips Square, that sounds uh, that sounds good to me. Yeah, I think like I would miss the vibes. What I really enjoyed about Harborfront was you could lay on that fake astroturf grass and listen to a musician play on their gazebo stage and if you wanted to look at some of the art installations or some of the artists who are working down there there was a lot of other things going on other than the festival and one of the cool things that they had is down at the harbor front they have these kind of like food vendor kiosks which a lot of the veg uh to fest exhibitors who have kitchens would actually sell their sell their eats out of so i'd I'd be curious to see how we would change being at nathan phillips square um unfortunately this year i myself won't actually be able to go down but for future years if they stay at nathan phillips square i would be curious because like i said i've kind of attended the festival through the years i've watched it change i've watched it develop um there's a really long history around vegto because it is run by um a charitable organization and they've been around i think since like 1945 mm. and their entire thing is to support uh, people who are looking to shifting towards a more plant-based lifestyle in the gta and they have many many resources you can actually join their membership i think it's only 25 bucks and what it does is that it gives you um discounts to various restaurants to various stores be the first to know get access to resources so it's a pretty cool organization and they've been around and then they you know put on this vegetarian food festival every year now yeah actually, the one looks, thing that's fast i, I guess yeah, this is the point of clear clarification because I'm, I'm while you're while you're just explaining a bit of the history on this i was taking a quick look at the vendors it looks like they've gone as far as uh vegan so not just vegetarian so you're not going to find any yeah. butter honey or cheese at, at this festival but you know my favorite thing taking a look at the list of vendors here is um you know i think as you would expect at a vegan food festival a lot of animal rights um organizations will be there with kiosks to offer information on uh, on the work that they're doing uh, i mean that's one where being perfectly blunt i have mixed feelings on how far some of those groups go but i mean focusing on the positive when i see vendors like chocasol which is one of my favorite vendors at a lot of farmers markets in toronto and seeing things like uh, molly b kitchen you know it's it's always great where you know i think a lot of people still have this vision in their head of you know, vegans sitting around eating a bowl of lettuce and like that being it. But when you see really great vendors like Chocasol and Molly B, like shout out to two places I love to frequent, you know, when food is good because it's good, it's nice when you don't have to attach an ism to it. Like it doesn't matter that these are vegan vendors, they just make good food, which is what is great about checking out events like this is you might discover a new favorite dish that you did not know was vegan. I will fully say that whenever I went to the Veg uh, TO Fest years ago, and and it is to your point, it is a vegan food fest. I don't know if it always was. It was always it, that's why I said they did rebrand. They used to be called the Vegetarian Food Fest, and yeah. my memory cannot um, 
cannot recall whether it was a vegan food fest all this time and just called the vegetarian food fest. But regardless, I used to go to this festival to just snack. I, yeah. I totally was like a person who went from table to table and ate samples and bought so much food. I, I think after my first year there, I, I got better. I would like show up with a giant cooler bag every year um, and, and just stock up <laughs> because a lot of them offer really great deals at the time, um, usually at the festival as well. There were a few uh, vendors that I shopped from on the regular. So for me, and, and it's interesting I talk about the lettuce thing because I went there with um, when I first was exploring a plant-based diet, I was quite a hardcore athlete and so for mm -hmm. me it was how do i build a plant-based lifestyle that could fuel me and they had some really prolific speakers like brandon brazier being one of them being an iron man triathlon who developed the vega product line um you know uh, giving plant-based protein powders and and pre-workout supplements there were a lot of protein bars there um for sale that were delicious and i literally would go and buy almost everything off their table every mm. single year so yeah if you're looking at eating and enjoying yourself i think like that's definitely a place to explore some delicious food and if you want to talk about plant-based foods that people don't necessarily clue in could be vegan or are naturally vegan hummus sunflower kitchen just to shout it out is also there and um i definitely eat some snacks at sunflower kitchen if you want some really delicious soups and hummuses sounds great definitely something worth checking out now, coming up after the break, we did spend a bit of time talking about what we're watching on TV, but you asked me an interesting question about a very popular Netflix show that uh, I'm going to see one from you, Maroki. I have some opinions on. Ooh, I'm looking forward to those opinions. So if you want to hear Andre's opinions on the TV shows that we're watching about food, stick around. We'll be right back after this break on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome back. I am Andre Pru. And I'm Maroki Tong. And Andre, I've been binge watching a show lately while working on my computer at night. And I will fully say I am entertained. Is it cake? Is it cake? Is it cake? Oh my God. <laughs> this isn't cake. Oh man, you've, you've fallen down that rabbit hole. You know what's funny? I've never really been into this kind of stuff. And I was looking for just like an easy breezy show to watch. I tend to work <laughs> late. Everyone knows I'm a night owl and I like putting on a little bit of just like ambient entertainment in the background. And this one ended up coming up. And so we've been watching it. So I, I, I shouldn't say I'm obsessed per okay, se. It's fair, not fair. like I'm sitting there staring with my eyes glued to the screen, but I am entertained. Um, I'm not sure I get it. I'll, I'll be honest, when I was visiting my nephews in Regina a few weeks ago, um, they were actually watching this. They were glued mm. to the TV. And I mean, for those of you who haven't seen the show, like they assemble a bunch of chefs who are really good at baking things that look super realistic and they assemble a panel of judges. And then the judges have to guess whether or not an object on a stage presented by Mikey Day, who's a very funny cast member from Saturday Night Live, uh, they force them to guess whether or not what's in front of them is cake before Mikey Day tries to cut into it with a large cake knife. I don't get it. I don't get it. I just don't get it. What am I missing? What am I missing, Maroki? Like, like, fill me in. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's interesting because, like, I was trying to think about why we as people get really obsessed with these kind of things um, and, and these particular trends. And I, you know, did some kind of, like, 
loose reading of certain articles. I, I don't claim to be a psychologist and I don't even think the people who wrote these articles are psychologists, but I think like, there's a couple of things. I think one, I think all of us appreciate artistry, right? Similarly to sort of um nailed it where we kind of <laughs> love the, I don't know, sh like schadenfreude of watching people just do terrible things and, and be and fail miserably and kind of giggle at it. We similarly, I think also have a desire to see people just really push our skills to the to the test and a lot of these cake artists are not just bakers they a lot of them are artists they are sculptors they might have fine art degrees and it's kind of interesting seeing the the combination of those skills brought together um i think that that's one thing and then i think um people kind of love that whole what they say you like um uh what's you like like watch crashing trains okay, or what, like what's, a train that, what's wreck. that it's it's like yeah it's like watching a, a train wreck you can't turn away or a, or a dumpster fire yeah 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 you just can't turn uh, away and they say like you know when you watch the destruction of the cake uh it makes people like feel uncomfortable and gratified at the same time so it's that illusion thing right it's like that whole thing when um people always like it's like when you watch people do pranks that are realistic and you think maybe you've harmed something but indeed you haven't so that is what some people are saying um and that's what uh like if we want to kind of throw some signs to to it there <laughs> fellow um sander vander cruz i have no i'm reading the the name off the website but they're yep. a po postdoctoral fellow at the university of leuven's laboratory of experimental psychology so these are the whole thing about art setting up expectation and then violating that expectation so i think that's i think that's sort of the I don't know if we want to kind of get deep into the brain science around it. You know what? That was a far more detailed answer than I was expecting to explain, like, why I should enjoy this. But, I, I mean, like, if we're unpacking <laughs> kind of the visceral response of this, is it just like, you know, I do love watching people sort of push to the limits of what we can do with food. Um, you know, we talked a lot about Top Chef World All-Stars this summer. Uh, you know, once again, another shout out to Dale McKay, competitor on that. Um, we don't need to get into that. But like the Top Chef World All-Stars winner, Buddha, um, my favorite thing about watching him cook is he was like the king of working with molds and all sorts of like really beautiful artistic techniques where what looked, what ended up on your plate looked like, you know, a little piece of art. But on the other hand, it was, you know, small, functional and delicious for me, there's just something that kind of bothers me when I look at, like, a realistic life-size toilet, having people guess whether or not it's cake, and just imagining all that food going to waste, you know? Like, mm. I, we've, I've worked in radio a long time, and, and let me fill everyone listening to this show in um, on a bit of a secret uh, radio does not pay a lot, so when a free pizza or a bucket of chicken shows up in the lunchroom, it lasts for about seven seconds because we're all really appreciative when there is a meal that shows up at the station and that does not last a long time. Um, I have a hard time imagining a small crew for uh, a show like Is It Cake demolishing two or three life-size cake toilets over the course of a day. Yeah, that's totally fair. I mean, I know some friends who used to do audio on food shows, like usually YouTube series and stuff, and they did say one of the perks was that they got a chance to eat some delicious food. Yeah. Um, however, pounds and pounds and pounds of cake, especially ones that you're essentially obliterating on screen, oftentimes the host is really well known. You know, he cuts the cake and you see the, that piece of cake just sort of fall off the table. You don't really get a chance to eat it. I do know that taste is a factor in this competition, so it's not just about 
the hyper realism of cakes, but the case the, the the cakes do need to be tasty in order for you to win it. And I know that's actually some of the criticism that um, chefs or pastry chefs have made of some of these like the hyper realistic cake trend. They're saying you know it's a cake that's being loaded full of fondant, modeling chocolate, yes. rice crispy treats, all all of that stuff that's not necessarily cake. And then you know the question is, okay, you made a really cool looking cake, but is it actually edible and delicious? So. Um, I, I do appreciate that they have made taste a component, but I agree with you, Andre. Like that is some food for thought for me. I do think about food waste on food shows regularly, even on a show like Top Chef, where most of the plates are pretty um, smaller portioned. And I still wonder, I'm like, I'm thinking, I'm like, I don't think the chef's probably clear the plates that often. I wonder no, if the kidding. crew gets a chance to eat it afterwards, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Well, I mean, that's something that I think would be worth looking into because I have no idea how the production for that works. But um, you, you asked me actually another question because uh, you actually touched on something that my wife and I talk about. My, my wife, Anya, who is a, a pastry chef, has done some of the like sort of cake boss stuff. And it's just like you mentioned like fondant and modeling chocolate. And it's just one of those things where when you look at these impressive things, like I've never even been a fan of like cake boss. Like I'm, I'm sorry. I know some people really love that. And but it comes down to taste. It comes down to taste. Like the reality is like fondant is basically edible Play-Doh. That's a little bit sweet, but it doesn't taste good. Like, I think, I think the one thing I remember oh, talking yeah. to my wife, Anya uh, about this I is, Oh my gosh, you're so weird. Um, but like for for Anya, when she does her baking and, and makes like cakes for children's birthday parties and things like that, does she make sure that every part of the cake is completely delicious? Well, and, and let me ask a question to you, Maroki. For one of the Game of Thrones finales, like quite a ways, quite a while ago, she actually baked a cake where the top of the cake looked like there was a layer of blood dripping around the side, and that was all done with um, with buttercream. And what she did, she made an iron throne that sat on top of the cake. And what she did was she actually baked like a good two or three dozen individual little swords and painted them with with colored chocolate and assembled it so that when you were biting into the iron throne, it wasn't just a piece of Play-Doh. It wasn't just fondant. It was actually a delicious cookie. And I mean, it was a lot of work and a lot of effort. But like in that moment, it was just like, Maroki, what would you rather eat? An iron throne made of fondant? Or like a beautiful speculoos cookie covered in chocolate. I think, um, I, I, and I actually believe that they have made comments about this on Food Network in the past. It's just sort of the integrity of making, uh, I guess, like designer cakes, realistic cakes, or cakes that require sculpting, and how much of cake material you're using versus alternative materials like bottling yeah. chocolate and rice krispie treats and they've they've actually rewarded points for that i believe in the past whether you know the kind of um tools you cuz some people you know some people can go way out of the way and actually just wrap modeling chocolate around styrofoam yeah, right exactly. or around wood exactly. for some of their some of the more demanding features and they and i think like we all recognize that as an audience whether that would be considered i guess like kosher or not so i think uh i think we've just i think we've opened a can of worms andre maybe we need to dive <laughs> deeper down the line of what it means to be making good cake and also good designer cakes and of course if people have opinions on this be, feel free to dial into the station 416-966-7280 and give us your hot give us your hot, hot take on, on what you like about give us your hot take about the cake Oh, man. See, I, was, I knew you would get there. I knew you would get there. Coming up after the break, um, we talked off the top of the show about VegFest, but I mean, it is the best time of year in Ontario if you love vegetables, and you're going to fill us in on a bit of a secret on how to get your hands on the 
literally the freshest veg you can get. Oh my god, I can't wait. This is something I just discovered recently too, folks. So stick around, don't go away. We'll be right back on 640 Toronto. This is Tasting Together. You're listening to Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. While on Tasting Together, I think one of the things that we love to do, Andre, a lot is dig into all the cool things that are happening around the region. And I will say harvest season is right around the corner. And I'm super excited if it hasn't started already, frankly. I don't really know. I don't really know. You probably know better than me, Andre, about what is kind of hot and seasonal <laughs> and growing and ready to be picked and consumed. Oh, man. It's something that I, I pine for. And it's one of these things where, like, even when I talk to my brother on the phone, where it's just like, oh, uh, you know, spring is here. The fresh strawberries are in season. You're just like, how do you know that? And it's just like, well... You know, when you're married to a chef, you become pretty tuned into what's in season because, you know, when you when you buy vegetables that are in season, things always taste better. And I know a lot of people will take for granted the fact that if you want a tomato, you can get it year round. But pay attention to that sticker on it because we talk a lot about food tasting where it comes from. Where food comes from definitely affects the flavor. And when you get to the, the deep, dark depths of January and February... Those Mexican greenhouse-grown tomatoes, they don't taste as good as like a beautiful August-September Ontario fresh-off-the-vine tomato, you know? I can attest to that. I know we're giving you our anecdotal experience, but a friend just pulled some fresh cucumbers recently oh, at a backyard yeah. gathering, cut it up for us. It genuinely did taste different. Even my partner, Eric, kind of looked at me and it was like, oh, it tastes different. And I've picked up some beautiful heirloom tomatoes from Prince Edward County on a visit in the past, leaving the city. And I will fully admit, I actually am not the biggest fan of raw tomatoes. I'm kind of hit or miss on them. Gotcha. And I, and, and I remember we cut into these and ate these and the umami on them was just so incredible it was one of those moments where i was like i need to drive two hours out to prince edward county every weekend to get these <laughs> tomatoes because they are that freaking good so well, okay okay I, you know, to, just to yes. hop in there real quick because because I, I mean you did say something interesting about not being a fan of the of the, the fresh but do you do a lot of like canned tomatoes like in the middle of the winter either making pasta sauces or even like soups like just reaching for a, a jar of tomatoes from the shelf like do you do any of that Oh, yeah, we definitely eat cooked tomatoes. Don't get me Perfect. wrong. It's not that I don't eat tomatoes and I do eat cherry tomatoes in my salad. I was just saying I was just saying in the spectrum of all the different fruits and vegetables out there, it's not necessarily the first one. And it might yeah, be yeah. because I grew up on beefsteak tomatoes and we <laughs> ate them raw. And I will fully admit, you know, species of tomatoes matter, right? They There's do. like thousands of species out there that we never even get a chance to see. And so I was very specific when I said heirloom tomatoes. But yeah, going well, back to harvest seed. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, one of the best things about this time of year, and I know this is a bit of a tangent about where we're going but um the other thing i love about this time of year and, and where we're going and picking fresh produce is that you can can them and preserve them and then you can revisit them in the winter and it, you do get to hold on to a lot of that flavor it's different than fresh but even those taste better than what you get from the grocery store and if you're really smart because you can reuse your jars over and over again um you can actually save some money doing that as well yeah, I have not uh, learned how to do canning yet. Now that I live in a condo in Toronto, it seems like it's an incredibly difficult thing to do with the small space <laughs> I have because all my friends, uh, you know, I grew up in the country, for those of you who um, don't know, and I definitely have friends out there who can um, like a whole pantry's worth of goods around this time and i'm looking forward to getting my hands on a couple of pickles and a couple of jams from some friends who are kindly doing canning on my behalf from the <laughs> uh, from the incredible bounties that they're getting 
But the thing that I've become obsessed with, Andre, so let's hear it. Like I said, grew up in the country when it was time for harvest season. I just had to pop into my local farmer's market, which was St. Jacob's Farmer's Market. So anyone who wants to go west of the 401, it's a really great market to visit. And I would watch and buy bags and bags of stuff or even just baskets upon baskets of apples or even sometimes I would just go for a drive in my area and you would always have farm fresh stands everywhere but if you're in the GTA and kind of looking for a space to go I just found a website called pickyourown.org that gives you a list of all the farms that you could visit in Ontario Canada apparently and beyond yeah it looks like it's full continental season Yes, I'm actually I'm looking at the the chart like right in front of me right now, which like I love looking at. And it's the thing where, you know, as Canadians, like it goes by month, like it's 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 columns by month and then rows by the the cultivar. And like we are right prime in apple season, Asian pear season, beans, beets, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, like there's so many things in season now, but it's kind of funny when you go back to like January, February, March, April, then you have like the very small, like early, like lonely asparagus back in (laughs) May being the first thing that's uh, available and, you know, field strawberries get a short season, but like we get a good like few months here of these, this beautiful, fresh green produce, things like watermelon, um, zucchini, cantaloupe. Oh man, like it's a this this is the time of year for I yeah, and I love the idea of picking your own. I don't know about you, Andre, but I definitely have <laughs> memories as a child like doing the pick your own strawberry thing. So I think it's a really great family outing if you're looking for doing a little bit of sunshine, uh keeping your kids occupied, teaching your children where your food comes from. I think yes. the idea of connecting to the roots of our food is super important. But what I love about this website, you were speaking about canning and preserving foods. They have yeah. a really comprehensive list on how to can, how to make jam, how to dry, how to freeze your produce or yeah. even make your own ice cream. Like I think that's really really great you can not only pick uh find a place where you can pick your own fruits and veg you also can find out how to kind of extend the life of that because i will say one of the mistakes i made when i was younger was i bought a giant basket of apples and literally had no idea how to store or what to do with it and i think it just sat on the main floor where eventually the bottom layer got moldy and then i ended up juicing a lot of it um but you know if i had followed what the farmers were telling me um allegedly i could have kept those apples all through the winter yeah um i i like that is one of the great things and that's why i was also asking about canning earlier is i'm a religious canner um earlier the the moment that peaches went in season because i love niagara peaches it's one of my favorite things about living in ontario and i jones for them in the middle of the winter so i canned about 14 liters of them now, I'm sure for a lot of people listening to the show right now, they might think that's a lot of work, but I've been canning for the past 13 years. It takes me about two hours start to finish, peel the peel the peaches, take them off the nut, put them in the jar, make a light syrup, and then process the jars. Um, so like, Maroki, even you in your small space, like you don't need to can 14 liters, but if you have like a favorite vegetable, like my wife is Polish, naturally we have a lot of pickles in the house. Uh, so throwing together four jars of pickles when we see the, the beautiful dill cucumbers or, or the pickling cucumbers in season, you know, that takes about an hour. And then we get delicious pickles all through the winter, although four jars doesn't last a long time. 
That's fair. I do make kombucha and I have carved out a tiny little space for all those basin jars. So I suppose that I can look into canning in the future. (laughs) Um, I think another thing that's really cool that about like kind of pick your own or going out to farms that people don't necessarily think about is that this is also the great time where if you're looking at pumpkin patches or if you're looking at kind of corn mazes so again outdoor activities or chances just like hang out with some animals those are all the kind of activities you can go when you head into the countryside yeah well i mean that's the other thing too i love that you brought up pumpkin patches because it's just it's the sort of thing too where um, you know, the whole concept of heirloom tomatoes and versus beefsteak versus Roma versus San Marzano, that not all tomatoes are made the same. It's a little bit like that with pumpkin. And I'm kind of excited to see where things are going because I'm a, I'm a pumpkin pie fanatic. I don't know. Do you, how do you feel about pumpkin I think pie? honestly, I, I'm a pumpkin pie fanatic, but honestly, Andre, <laughs> I just want to see a picture of your baby next to a giant pumpkin. <laughs> but that's it though. Uh, like I love when you can go to certain pumpkin patches where they have different kinds of pumpkins. Um, if you go to a grocery store and you see the pie pumpkin, it's not a pumpkin pie, a pie pumpkin, those are actually better to bake with because they have a little bit more sugar content. Um, there is one time I was helping out in Prince Edward County harvesting grapes, clearly my favorite thing to harvest. Um, I bought a Hubbard squash that was bigger than my dog, a good 30 pound one. It, I had to cut it into four. It took, I had to cut it into four to bake it down in my oven size apartment and, I can't remember how many pies I made with that. But I mean, a Hubbard squash is a cousin of a pumpkin that's got a gray skin and also delicious. And it's just like, yeah, okay. I'm I'm sad that like summer is is creeping away from us, but I am looking forward to squash season. I love harvest season. It would be if there's any, you know, maybe when we um, lament about summer being over, instead of lamenting over summer being (laughs) over, we should be getting excited about harvest season when the leaves are turning colors and we're just going to be like buried in bountiful, bountiful um, produce from the various farms and farmers markets getting ready to kind of fill in warmer bellies in uh, for the upcoming season. Well, and you forgot about the most important part about harvest parties no <laughs> the wine grapes in niagara and prince oh, edward county and lake erie north shore i was, I was <laughs> actually going to use that for a sell ahead andre i was like "Ooh, speaking of grape harvest our <laughs> next segment is going to be rolling back into our favorite topic of wine where we're going to be joined by danny longo from the global newsroom we're going to be... chat about all things fermented grapes yeah we're going to be unpacking our favorite wine gadgets uh, i know a couple of weeks ago i threw some shade at them we'll see if that stands that's coming up on 640 toronto this is tasting together you're listening to tasting together toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto So with Organic September in full swing, I think we're going to be talking a lot about all the things that we can do to make the world a little more sustainable. And I think that's like a really big buzz term, not just in everyday recycling, but obviously in food and drink as well, as we noticed when talking to Bonterra. But now that we're joined by Danny Longo from the Global Newsroom, I think it'd be a good idea, Andre, to really talk a little bit more about, I guess, sustainability in wine as a whole. Like Danny is... Buying sustainable in wine something you think about often when you're making your choices or is that just like something that you don't consider when it comes to buying wine for your household? Yeah, I would say, I mean, we always try and be conscious shoppers, but it's not something I'm looking at specifically. It's kind of like a nice bonus. You know, like if I'm buying a wine and I like the wine and they happen to be an organic winery, great. 
you know, and I will try and purchase more from there if I can, but I'm not going to not buy a wine that I like if they're not organic. What if they're like burning all the fossil fuels and uh... <laughs> yes, of course, I would not support them. But I haven't heard of any wineries that are burning fossil fuels that I know of anyway. You know, it is something that brings up an interesting question because like I know organic is a very popular and, and it's definitely a, a part of, um, you know, part of the part of consumer culture nowadays. But it has been fascinating as somebody who spent a lot of time in wineries uh, literally all over the world now in my career as a wine writer is just getting a better understanding of how restrictive organic agriculture can be. So I've visited um, organic wineries and biodynamic wineries in California, and the climate is just 100% suited for that type of viticulture. Like you, you are not dealing with a lot of disease pressure or things like humidity as bad as you are in some other climates where you're spending a lot of time in France. I know we are starting to see more of a movement towards organic farming, but there are a lot of growers that are hesitant to switch to organic and it's not because they hate the planet. It's just, it takes a really long time to get organic certification and you never know what mother nature gives you. And if you have a hard year growing grapes you run the risk of if you're organic not being able to use something that might mean that you save your crop or you lose a whole bunch of money and when i talked to some of the grape growers in france and notably in, in beaujolais where i heard a farmer explain this philosophy to me it's basically they don't use sprays if they don't have to and getting a chance to know some of these growers that to me is almost as good as seeing an organic sticker on a bottle but i realize it's a lot to ask every consumer to research every winery they're buying from you know I, I realize i'm at an advantage with what i've what i've been able to do i know there's definitely a lot of criticism around the kind of certifications that you can get as well because i i remember you know pulling away from wine a little bit but i'm I, I think like one of the usda organic stickers has sort of come under fire I, uh, several years ago at this point so maybe things have changed that since then but i remember years ago the the joke was always like well if you give them enough money they will give you the sticker and that's why there's so many different certifications in place. And it, it gets even more complicated because I remember um, there are a few wines that are imported to Ontario, I think, that while certified organic somewhere else don't meet Ontario's level of certification, they actually yeah. have to cross it out on their bottles, which I think is weird. Well, I mean, not not necessarily weird. I mean, like I said, if you if you think about what the challenges are that come with farming... You're literally asking a global community, North and Southern Hemisphere, you know, European, Asian, North American, like farmers to come together and, be, and all agree on what the definition of organic is, right? I, I don't see that being something that's that's certainly easy. And also, like, can you imagine? I, I imagine that, like this, this might be something worth researching as well is I imagine that what you would do in a field of corn or a field of flax or a field of tomatoes would be a lot different than what you do in a in a vineyard, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I do um, hear the point about disease pressure for sure. I know that's something that a lot of Ontario growers certainly speak to where they say how it's easy if a place is really dry and has a lot of sunshine can manage pests and mildew. However, in a vineyard that is wet a lot, um, if you don't use certain commercial grade uh, chemicals, you actually end up with no crop that year, which could obviously be a huge issue but i think we're pulling away from the subject here i thought we were gonna maybe like talk I, I think we want to talk about the importance of sustainability but maybe even call out that 
I don't know, maybe some uh, some people may be jumping on the sustainable bandwagon for the sake of making a sale. I mean, that's it. I, I thought that's what we were. I thought that's what we were talking about. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, you take a look here. I, I just pulling it back to to local. Like, I know that there are a couple of wineries that I don't want to mention because I don't want to throw their names under the bus. But when I started writing about wine in 2010, we're proudly organic and one were biodynamic and both of them have pulled away from that. But both are still making celebrated high quality wines. And I don't think anybody has taken it away from them. Um, but you, you know, Maroki, like it is it is tough. Like, what does sustainable mean? Right? Like, what does sustainable mean? Yeah, I, I don't know. Well, what is sustainability? Sustainability means is that that that, that has nothing to do with organic, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many facets that go into winemaking that have an impact on the environment. Like one, running a production facility uses a lot of water. Uh, mm -hmm. Like winemaking is, you know, the joke that's not a joke. It's like 90% cleaning. So spraying down tanks, spraying down floors, making sure the winery is spotless so that you're not getting any bad bacteria that gets into the winemaking. Um, depending on the time of year, it's very energy intensive because temperature control is very yeah. important for maintaining the quality of your product. So whether you have a glycol system or a large air conditioning that you have to run to keep your barrels at a temperature or your tanks at a certain temperature, then you've got, you know, the environmental impact of shipping your wines all over the world. What's the weight of your glass? What kind of corks are you using? What kind of closures are you using? Is everything recyclable from top to bottom? And I mean, this goes far beyond on top of the fact that if you're running a winery, you need to make sure that your vineyards come back every year, regardless of what Mother Nature throws at it. So on one hand, you're also a steward of the land. So, you know, if you're running a successful winery, you know, your goal is to make sure that your your vineyards stay alive, regardless of what happens, right? And I guess that like those are the different layers of sustainability versus organic or biodynamic or what they have. You can make organic wine, but you might not necessarily have a sustainable production facility that makes the organic wine. If you are using a facility that's, you know, generating either a lot of heat or a lot of cooling, a lot of temperature control or, you know, you're using water in excess. And these days, sustainability also talks about people. So if you're not taking care of your people and, if, you know, given that we we think we've mentioned before, as we roll into harvest, I know a lot of migrant Workers going to come and uh, pick from the vines um, through, you know, through Ontario. We have a lot of migrant workers and if we don't treat them well, that's not necessarily sustainable then either. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like the the dark part of the industry that a lot of people don't even want to think about. It's, and it's not just grape growers. It's it's people who deal with, you know, I mentioned tomatoes earlier, like the migrant workers are the backbone of a lot of what we eat in Canada. And a lot of people I don't think are, are cognizant of that. And it's an important part of the industry. I think that's a good call, Maroki. So I think like on that note, then I don't know, like Danny, I don't know if that actually changes your opinion a little bit about upon choosing to buy wines that maybe have certain certified sustainable logos on them, whether they say they're B Corp certified or say they're LEED certified, because those are the wineries that ensure that there aren't chemical runoffs into into rivers or into oceans or ones that, you know, you know, for sure, taking care of their workers and taking care of the land. I, I think the idea of having a sustainable winery is great. You know, you want to preserve the wildlife. You want to preserve as much water as you can. Um, and from what I understand, if you're doing that, it also maintains healthy soil and that'll help you grow grapes for a longer period of time, right? Well, okay, here's a question I'm going to put to both of you. You know, all three of us are people who, when they tune into the show, know that we care a lot about the industry we care a lot about wine we care a lot about what we're drinking but do you think that an, uh, an average consumer heading to the lcbo to pick up a bottle of wine on a friday night to enjoy with dinner cares about sustainability especially if they have to pay an extra five dollars a bottle to get a sustainable chilean cabernet sauvignon versus a mass-produced one that might be ten dollars 
Yeah, if you're asking me the average consumer, I would definitely say no. Um, but there are some people who will reach for that extra $5 bottle, even, you know, might taste the same. Maybe, you know, in your head, tastes a little bit better knowing exactly what you're buying. You know, you know, they did it right and you know they're paying their workers well. So, hey, here's my extra $5. I mean, I guess it kind of comes down to education, right? Like if I would think that the people who already are trying to reduce their footprint, environmental footprint, are willing to put the extra couple of bucks more to buy something that is sustainable. For those who aren't, then maybe it's a, it's a matter of making them understand that you're getting a better quality product. And that's kind of a better quality product inside your body too, right? So like, right. It, it, are you drinking something that is being beaten to death or has actually a lot of... Um, injections of like mega purple or or liquid oak inside of it things that they don't have to list on a bottle of wine to sell it to you by the by versus getting something that is higher quality knowing that you're getting something that is literally coming farm to table or vine to bottle you know you went through a whole bunch of terms there that we definitely don't have time to unpack today such as liquid oak and mega purple but that's definitely something we'll have to unpack <laughs> on a later show if you're and that's uh, why you should tune into tasting together every saturdays at 5 p.m so that you can learn weird terms like mega purple and liquid oak with us you know until next week i highly suggest you google those terms if you're interested in learning about what goes into especially mass-produced wines and thanks so much for listening this week on 640 toronto